Good morning. Here to bring God's word to you this morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews, beginning in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Skipping ahead to verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Chapter 11, verse 13. In chapter 11, the author of Hebrews has laid out all these characters that had lived by faith. And he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And in 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We're going to conclude with chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, 
If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned from them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples of those that have gone before us. Thank you for your work in their lives and your work in our lives. God, speak to us this this morning. Give us your word, not mine. God, give us boldness. Give us courage. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. All right. So why am I up here this morning? Pastor Clint asked me, Um, to talk a little bit about camp. So I'll be talking about some of the material that uh, we covered at camp, but also wanted to um, let you know some of the things that happened at camp. So first of all, um, we had 57 campers this year, which was great. Our capacity was 60, so we were right at our threshold. Um, I began preparations for camp the day that I started working in the office here. Um, In fact, the day after that, um, I drove down with Aaron McMillan from Chapel of the Lake to the campsite, and we scouted it out um, and discussed preparations and um, what it would look like to prepare camp for 57 campers in, I think it was a month at that point. Um, so at camp, one of the privileges I had, um, one of the things I was voluntold to do, uh, was to get up at 6.30 every morning and lead a time of, um, like a workout time for the campers, so... By the end of the week, uh, we were all sore. Um, And if you got up early, you could go on the boats with uh, Brian or with Pastor Keith. Um, This is just two of my favorite photos. I just love how their feet are over their heads. Um, And in this next one, just just the, the sheer expression of fear on his face. This is, this is how we teach campers to conquer their fears. We take them, we put them behind a boat. Um, yes, there was a kiddie pool full of Orbeez. I think it was like 30,000 Orbeez. Um, this was our annual tradition, the, the color war. Got some great pictures there. Even Tana Tally getting in on the action. You can see her in the middle. And here are the kids after the color war. And we promptly put them in a bubble bath on a tarp, because that's what you do at camp. 
So we played a lot of fun games at camp. Um, here is a game called Head, Shoulders, and Knees Cup. It's great. Uh, I would explain it, but we don't have time. Um, we had a toilet paper fashion contest. Uh, this was my favorite. Um, I got to tell kids that they could throw cheese balls at their teammate, um, and the teammate had shaving cream all over their face, and the object was to see how many cheese balls you could get to stick on their face. <laughs> it, was, it was a hit. Uh, and then we had a lip-sync dance battle one of the nights, which was a lot of fun. Um, so there's your little update on what happened at camp. Um, we had great um, sessions. Um, Pastor Aaron from Chapel of the Lake was our speaker, um, he spoke on the theme of fearlessness, and we, we looked at the lives of several biblical characters and also at the life of Jesus in particular. And so the question I have for you today, or maybe the question you have for me, is why fearless? Well, our fears, our insecurity, our doubt, our fear of rejection, our fear of opposition, or our fear of unmet expectations— those fears will hold us back from living the lives God has for us. So that's why we have a week-long camp about fears and how to live fearlessly. So um, I want to look at a few of um, the stories that we talked about at camp. So if you were at camp, um, first of all, I want to give a shout-out to um, those that served at camp. First of all, Pastor Clint. Pastor Clint came along at camp, and he counseled uh, a cabin of high school boys. So... Let's give, I know he's not here, he might be watching. Let's give Pastor Clint a hand. Um, Lauren Doris helped counsel a cabin of high school girls. Um, Terry Talley helped in the kitchen, as he always does. Uh, he also kind of heckled in the kitchen, but we'll talk. Um, Tana Talley uh, helped counsel a cabin of middle school girls. Susan Arthur was an absolute boss in the kitchen. Um, I'm not saying she was bossy, she was just... <laughs> The food was great. That's what I'm saying. Um, I'll be in trouble later. Steve Arthur, thank you for coming, uh, helping in the kitchen with setup, um, cleanup. Um, you see this sign back here. Um, this sign would not have gone up uh, at camp, at least not as quickly as it did and as good-looking as it did uh, without Steve's help. Um, it's really hard to hold things. And... Anyway, so thank you, Steve. That was a lifesaver. Um, thank you, Tyler, for coming and helping with the kitchen, with cleanup, setup, and lakefront. Judy Muller, thank you so much for helping in the kitchen. Um, Sheila Youngblood in the kitchen. Mike Greco in the kitchen. And then thank you to Brian Nelson uh, for helping with boats and lakefront and air conditioning. Can we give all of them a hand for everything they did? <laughs> Camp would not have happened without you. Um, and even if we had just one of you missing, it would have, it would have suffered a lot. <laughs> so um, thank you to all of you. So if you were at camp like the ones I just mentioned, or some of our campers at camp, um, you may have noticed, if you were paying any attention, that the passage I just read was not a passage that we discussed. It, it wasn't one of our featured texts at camp, so why did, I, why did I use it? Well, we have a number of texts at camp, um, and they were really great texts, but when you're preaching a week-long camp, you can have five different central texts, and I can't do a sermon with five different central texts. So that's our central text, and we'll, that'll be the spine um, that we'll be attaching all these appendages onto um, and hopefully make sense. So if you were at camp, stay tuned. It's not just going to be Camp 2.0, okay? There, there's a different, a different thing coming. If you weren't at camp, 
great, this is your first time. Um, so I want to talk a bit about um, some of these characters. Um, you may know the story of Caleb and Joshua. In Numbers 13, God told Moses to send spies into the promised land, and they brought back a wonderful report, but the residents were huge, they said. They were afraid. And um, Joshua and Caleb alone believed God's promise to give them the land. And they said, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Caleb and Joshua were not afraid to stand up to their fellow Israelites or to take the promised land because they believed God's promise and trusted him to be with them and fight for them. Um, skipping ahead to the life of Isaiah, on Wednesday nights, if you've been at Wednesday nights, um, we've been looking at the life of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah tells us about a vision he had in which he clearly saw God's holiness and majesty. He writes, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And in the very next verse, the voice of the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah turns from this utter expression of fear to saying, Here I am. Send me. Send me. What a, what a change. 180 turnaround. You probably know the story of Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, when Daniel um, and his friends were carried off into captivity in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar was looking uh, for young men to serve in his court. And they were supposed to be trained. They were supposed to be given rich food. But Daniel and his friends realized that that food was unclean. They realized that it was not the food um, that God had told them was okay for them to eat. And because they feared God and his commands... They refused to defile themselves with the unclean food. And instead, they asked to be given different food to eat. At first, you know, the story, the eunuch in charge um, was concerned. But Daniel appealed to the steward that the eunuch had put in charge. And he asked to be given only vegetables and water for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, um, to be compared with their peers who ate the king's food. The steward agreed. And at the end of the 10 days... Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were better looking and better nourished than all the other youths. From then on, they were given only vegetables. And the rest of the story tells us that God blessed them with skill, with wisdom and understanding, and they were the king's best advisors. Now, two chapters later, chapter 3, uh, refers to Daniel's three friends by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, you know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar had built a huge golden statue of himself, and he ordered that everyone bow down and worship it, or else be thrown into a fiery furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remembering the second commandment, 
do not make graven images, do not worship any god other than the Lord your God, refused to bow down and worship the statue. They were brought swiftly to Nebuchadnezzar, who said to them, Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? They responded, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know the rest of the story. They were thrown into the furnace. And and in fact, scripture tells us that the men that carried them up to the furnace were killed by the heat of the fire. But Nebuchadnezzar looked in the furnace and he saw that they were walking around in the fire unharmed. And instead of three men, there there was a fourth man uh, who Nebuchadnezzar said looked like a son of the gods. And we can only imagine who that was. In chapter 6 of Daniel, Daniel's colleagues wish to trap Daniel and persuade the king to sign a decree that anyone who petitions any man or God other than himself for 30 days would be cast into the lion's den. You know the story. Daniel prayed to God three times a day, just like he always did, with his window open toward Jerusalem. The story has a happy ending, and Daniel survives the night in the lion's den, but he chose to do the right thing regardless of the outcome. Approximately 80 years after the fiery furnace, the Jews were in captivity, this time in Persia, and a young Jewish girl named Esther was selected by the king of Persia to be his wife. You know the story. The king's right-hand man, Haman, had plotted against the Jewish people, and Esther approached her husband, the king of Persia, to stop the plot. She knew that if the king did not wish to see her, she would be executed immediately. But she knew it was what she must do to save her people. Three days before she entered the king's presence, she told her cousin Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Then the scriptures are silent for about 400 years. But 400 years later, a carpenter from Nazareth was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. After fasting for 40 days, Jesus was hungry. And while being the son of God might have made it easier for him to resist temptation, it also made it uniquely possible for him to give in to that temptation. Jesus actually had the power to turn stones around him into bread. But when he was tempted, Jesus responded with the commands of his father. And he says, he told Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And again, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In all of this, 
Jesus remembered his father. He remembered the commands of his father. He remembered what he was on earth to do. When Jesus was healing the paralytic, lowered through a hole in the roof, he was questioned. They said, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus had claimed, he had said, man, your sins are forgiven. But he didn't hesitate when he was questioned because he knew he was the son of God. He knew he had the authority to forgive sins. When Jesus was on trial before Sanhedrin and when he stood before Pilate, he didn't hesitate because he knew he was the son of God. He knew that no one could take his life from him. He had the authority to lay it down, as it says in John 10, and the authority to take it up again. When he was about to be crucified, he didn't hesitate because, as as the author of Hebrews tells us, he saw the joy that was set before him. He saw what was on the other side. Now, when Jesus was on trial, a man named Peter, one of his disciples, was afraid and disowned him three times. But in Acts chapter 4, Peter and one of the other disciples, John, went out and they healed a man that was crippled from birth. And they were questioning about this. And Peter boldly said, it's, it's by the power and the name of Jesus that, that we healed this man. He did not deny Christ. He did not shy away from giving Jesus the glory for what he had done. What had changed First, we have someone who displays one of the most, um, one of the greatest displays of what we would probably consider cowardice in the Bible. And then in the next story, we have this boldness. What changed? Well, Peter had seen what Jesus had done. Peter had seen what Jesus had been through. Peter had seen the power of God. Peter knew that no matter what happened, Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, and he had a reward for him. And it says that after this miracle had happened, after they'd been questioned and um, Peter and John were released, they went back to their church. And the church was praying for them, and, and they told them what had happened. And the church was so inspired by what had happened, and they prayed, and they said, God, grant us boldness. They said, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You may remember a man called Stephen. He was doing all these miraculous signs and wonders, and, and he was questioned, he was told to stop, and he said, I won't stop. I won't stop. This is the power of God. And he was faced, he knew their anger, he saw their anger, and yet he continued speaking boldly. And scripture tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit and that the men questioning him, the men arguing with him could not compete with the Spirit speaking through him. And Stephen was stoned. And while he was stoned, a man named Saul watched on, giving his approval. But while later, Saul was stopped 
on the road to Damascus, as you might remember. And God called him and he said, Saul, stop persecuting me. And later he, he called Saul by the name we remember him, the name of Paul. And Paul became one of the most dedicated, the most committed um, followers of Jesus, the most committed apostle. Um, that's a huge change, just like Peter. And Paul did not have an easy life. And in fact, um, sometimes he was questioned, like, who do you think you are? And he responds, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about the other apostles. He says, I'm a better one. And he's, he's talking like a madman. He doesn't actually think he's better, but he's trying to make a point. He says, I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? And, and he tells us about this thorn in the flesh that God gave him to, to, to keep him from being conceited. Paul had a hard life. Following Jesus was not easy for him, but he continued and he persisted. Why? Well, in Philippians, he tells us that he count everything as lost because he wants to know Jesus. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had a reward in mind. He knew he had to be faithful. He knew it wouldn't be easy, but he knew he had to be faithful. He knew that Jesus had suffered so much that it was worth it. So I want to give us some observations. What does fearlessness come from? And then we'll talk about why it matters. So fearlessness comes from the blood of Jesus. In that first passage I read, um, you may have noticed the reference to the blood of Jesus. If we don't have the sense of cleansing by the blood of Jesus, we're not going to be fearless. We're going to be afraid to enter God's presence. We're going to be afraid to go serve God with others because we stand condemned without the blood of Jesus. Fearlessness comes from God's faithfulness. We have a God who makes promises and keeps them. And, and scripture tells us that if we're tempted, he always provides a way out. Fearlessness comes from community and encouragement. In the story about Peter and John, they went back to their church and they told them what had happened and the church got fired up and the church prayed together. And that's what the boldness came from. It came from God's power in them through prayer. And, and the author of Hebrews says, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's not neglect to meet together. Let's keep meeting together. Let's encourage one another. 
Fearlessness comes from faith in God who rewards and keeps. And as we read earlier, the author of Hebrews was commending his audience for this faith that they had, that they were willing to be persecuted. They were willing to lose possessions. They were willing to suffer because they knew the reward that God had promised. And in throughout the rest of this um, great chapter, I hope you read it, um, he commends these different biblical characters, Abraham, Sarah, Moses. And they all were looking forward to a reward. Now, as we read earlier, they didn't receive that reward in their lifetime. And the author of Hebrews tells us that they didn't receive it because Jesus was going to bring that. And then with us, they would receive it. With us, they'd be made perfect. Jesus tells us, fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. Fearlessness does not come from expecting a reward in one's lifetime. We just talked about that. Fearlessness comes from fearing God. Now that seems like a paradox. Why should one fear free us from another? Well, that's unfortunately what it means to be human. There's always something greater than us, and it will either be our problems or it will be the God that is greater than those problems. And Scripture tells us that God gave us fear. He, he showed us what he's like. He showed us his power so that we'd remember how great and awesome he is to keep us from sinning. It's in his mercy that he helps us fear him. We, we can't just say, I'm going to live without fear. That, that leads down a dead road. That's foolhardiness. But we, if we keep in mind the holiness and the majesty and power of God, that's what it means to truly live without fear. Matthew 10, 28 tells us, Jesus is speaking and he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he says, you're worth more than many sparrows. He says, your heavenly father, yes, he can destroy you. You need to respect him and revere him and fear him, but he cares for you. He cares for you. He holds you and he keeps you. Fearlessness comes from the example of Jesus. In chapters 12, the author of Hebrews says, let's run with endurance the race, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. We always have the example of Jesus to look to, to remember what it looks like to live fearlessly. Jesus had a reward. Jesus knew that there was something on the other side of his obstacle. And in our case, whatever we're afraid of, we don't have to fear what's in front of us if we know that there's something on the other side. Fearlessness comes from the power and presence of of God. Um, we've, we've had a whole lot of stories with examples of this. Joshua and Caleb were convinced that the Lord would fight for them. Isaiah prophesied that God would be with us in the water and the fire, as, as Terry read earlier. And it was true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They probably knew that prophecy um, from, it was, I think, 200 years prior 
150 years prior, Isaiah had written that. And they probably knew it. They probably knew those words. They probably knew God's promise that he'd be with them in the fire. And he was. Peter healed the man crippled from birth by the power of God. And it was the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that enabled him to speak boldly. The council would tell Peter and John, they, they could tell, they could just tell that they had been with Jesus because they were ordinary, uneducated men. But to speak with such boldness, the Pharisees could tell that they'd been with Jesus. God's miraculous works gave the church boldness. So why fearless? We already talked about how our fears can keep us from following God and living in obedience, but more specifically, why? The answer is our culture is not entirely different from the cultures in these stories. Our culture worships sex and sexuality, pleasure and comfort, ambition and gratification, instead of the God who created them. Our culture worships power and fame instead of the God who holds them. Our culture lives by what they can see. Our world is very much the same world that these characters lived in. And we all face choices. We all face choices. And when we're talking about fears, we're not necessarily talking about a fear of heights. We're not necessarily talking about a fear of spiders or snakes, although those could come into play. Some of us may need to work on that. Um, But we're talking about fear of the people around us. We're talking about what pe- fear of what people could do to us. We're talking about fear of what if it never gets easier? What if life never gets easier? What if the decision I made to follow Jesus is always going to be met with opposition? We're talking about the fear that comes when you realize you've been persecuted or you've been met with opposition for 30 years and you're tired of it and you're afraid. What if it gets worse? What if it never stops? because it might not. It might not. We all face temptations and pressures. And for some of us, those pressures are going to be, am I going to go to that party where they're doing things that I know shouldn't be done? Am I going to go to that environment that's going to pressure me to do things I know I don't want to do or I shouldn't do? Um, for some of us, it means when when we serve in the name of Jesus, but then we're asked about that, we're asked about the hope, we're asked why we would do such a thing, Maybe some of us, it means actually acknowledging that it was Jesus that did it. Some of us, it's a fear of confrontation. Confrontation is one of my my worst fears. I don't want to cause trouble. Um, And sometimes that's a really trivial thing, but it could become something really serious. We all might find ourselves in situations when the name of Jesus and us giving glory to God is at stake. And are we going to let our fear of confrontation, our fear of opposition, keep us from claiming the name of Jesus, keep us from giving him the glory? Why fearless? Because popularity matters to us. Maybe not all of you. I know that uh, when we were at camp, Pastor Aaron said, honestly, I don't care what people think about me. I'm married. I've got three kids. I don't care. I'm not trying to be cool anymore. Um, But especially for those of us that are younger, um, probably age 25 and younger, um, maybe even older than that, we still care a lot about that. We care what people think. And 
there's a problem when we let our fear of what people think keep us from living the way God wants. Why fearless? Guilt can keep us from walking in freedom and obedience. It's easy to compromise. It's easy to compromise. It's easy to go with the flow. It's easy to comply, especially when we see the opposition that could be at stake. It's easy to fear the immediate consequences more than we fear God. It's easier to fear the immediate consequences more than we fear God. It's easy to soft-pedal the power of Jesus. When we serve him or when something that we believe is miraculous happens, it's easy to say, oh, I guess we just lucked out. It's easy to say that it just worked out well. And instead of giving glory to the God who made it happen, and, and particularly giving glory to the God that goes by the name Jesus. It's easy to allow hardship to discourage us. It's easy to become like the seed that fell on rocky soil that sprouted up quickly, but when hardship came, it withered away because it had no root. So why fearless? Because there's a reward. There's a reward. This is not just a negative sermon. This is not just a negative concept that we're trying to avoid fear. It's not just about trying to get rid of of the bad. It's about pursuing the good. We're not just, you know, we read in Hebrews about God who's, you know, he warned once from earth and now he warns from heaven and we have to fear him and reverence him and realize that he's holy and he means business. He's the judge. Okay, there's that kind of fear at stake, but it's not just about fear. It's not just about us fearing eternal consequences. It's not just about that. It's about pursuing a reward God has made promises in scripture of rewards. But if we don't walk in obedience, if we don't walk in boldness and fearlessness, we're, we're gonna miss out on the rewards. We don't wanna miss out on the rewards. So that's why fearless. So a few points of challenge for us. First of all, oh, it gets all of them at once. Stand firm in your identity as children of God. Live as though Christ truly lives in you. Just as Jesus was questioned about his authority to forgive the, son, the, the man crippled from birth, the paralytic lowered through the, the hole in the roof, he didn't hesitate because he knew he was the son of God. And likewise, we're children of God. We're brothers with Christ, and we have to live confident in that identity. We have to live in the words of Paul, as though Christ truly lives in us. Paul said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I think that really radically can change the way we live if we, if we realize that when people judge us, they're not really judging us. The decisions that we make should be the decisions Christ would make in us. We need to ask for boldness rather than safety. That's what the first church did. When, when Paul, when um, Peter and John came back to church after healing the man crippled from birth, they didn't say, oh, that was a close call. We need to pray for more safety. We need to pray nothing like that happens again. They didn't. They didn't. They prayed for boldness. They said, God, that's so great. Give us more boldness so we can go out and do it again. Let's get in trouble more often. 
We need to live for the approval of God rather than the approval of people. Don't allow consequences to be conditions for obedience. We see from the the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that the outcome was not a condition for the obedience. They were willing to obey whether or not God delivered them from the fire. Daniel did whatever he had to do. He did what he normally did. He went to his room and prayed regardless of whether he'd be delivered from the lion's den. Jesus, in the story of him being tempted in the wilderness, he still refused the temptation of the devil. Now, Scripture tells us that after the devil left him, angels came and attended him, and his, his, his fast was over. But, you know, we assume Jesus knew that because he knew all things, but maybe not. Maybe the Father had, had said, you're just looking at here and now for the moment. And he did the right thing regardless of whether angels would come and attend him afterward. We have to accept the cleansing of Jesus' blood. There's nothing else that will enable us to live fearlessly before God, but even out in front of other people. We need to provoke each other to love and good works. We need to prioritize meeting each other, meeting with fellow Jesus followers. We need to live for the future reward. And finally, follow the example of Jesus. I could have summarized the sermon, and you could summarize any sermon with those five words. Follow the example of Jesus so we don't lose heart. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Jesus who lived without fear so that we could live without fear. Thank you that he considered the joy that was set before him greater than the pain that he would endure. Thank you that he stood firm in his identity. God, help us to live fearlessly. Help us to live with the courage that only you can give. Help us to consider your reward more valuable, more immense than the opposition we might face. Help us to remember to fear you and put you first instead of looking to the the, the people around us, instead of looking to the opposition we face. We pray all this in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Amen.